look at that. We got some music here uh, behind the yellow line to get things started. Jeremy, you know, I like to think that's Randall on the bass and the guitar. Uh, I, in my mind, that's who's playing that music for us as we get going tonight. Randall, the multi-instrumentalist, you know, a little Dave Grohl on Foo Fighters, just playing every instrument. I assume it's all three of us playing like the Cantina band in Star Wars, personally. Well, I, I'm still all on Randall, multi-instrumentalist, lyricist. Some people may not know this about Jeremy. If you catch Jeremy at a karaoke bar, goes up to the mic, he grabs it, and he says, I got some angst, and then he rips into porch and then starts climbing up on the light stanchions up above the stage. So that's something worth watching. But I am happy that we got some music here. We're mixing some things up here on the show. This is number 54. This is a Cubs podcast. But hey, Brian Erlacher, folks, number 54 here uh, behind the yellow line. Jeremy Spector's here. Randall J. Sanders is here. I'm Ronan O'Shea. We are on Twitter at BTYL Podcast. And guys, I'm excited about the show tonight because we got some things to talk about. There's some movement now in this collective bargaining agreement. We're going to chat on that. We got some sad news in the Chicago Cubs world today. Former player and then coach Gene Kleins passed away. The man had an incredible life. We're looking forward to sharing some of his story with you. Cubs are taking care of some of their top prospects down in Mesa. That's worth chatting on. Last week, we did an all-time Cubs draft, and we made some picks that made asses of ourselves. So we're going to talk about that. Nico Horner, Randall, come on. We're going to talk about that. I got one that I'm not too happy with. We're then going to put together our all-time team. We're going to talk about the Hall of Fame. David Ortiz in. A bunch of should-be Hall of Famers out. We've got things on that. We'll look at 54. And while we're talking 54, Bears have a new GM. Bears have a new coach. And we've got a season ticket holder here and some sad Bears fans that to talk about whether this is good or bad for the Bears. But here we are, folks. A couple of inches of snow today in Denver, right in the middle of winter. But we're getting some movement with the collective bargaining agreement. Lots to get to on this front. But, Jeremy, I think the right place to start. What's exciting about this week is for the first time in months, both parties met in consecutive days. And both parties made some concessions. So that's progress towards a resolution here. Not going to veil it. I mean, there's a long way to go still. But, Jeremy, let's start from the player perspective. What are some of the concessions the players have made this week or sort of given to the owners in means of getting to an agreement here? Yeah, so no, the main thing I would think is the players pretty much have accepted uh, six-year service time. Um, they uh, had put together a proposal and had thought, you know, try to get certain guys to become free agents a little earlier, under six years possibly, maybe do it by age, like 29 and a half. Certain year, but they've, the owners are very much against that. The players have decided, okay, that's not our top priority, so we'll move that to side. Uh, another being they uh, wanted to cut revenue sharing by $100 million. And they've, they've dropped that down to $30 million. Now the owners still are against revenue sharing, but that's another kind of significant movement that the players have made. Um, so, you know, they're still sticking with they want arbitration sooner and they want the higher minimums, but they have made a couple, uh, they've dropped some of their uh, demands from the owners that the owners had said they wouldn't even start to negotiate on. And it feels like the player's priority right now, instead of that certain year of getting to free agency, is all these young stars that are in the game, these great players that we're seeing across both leagues, getting them paid more of their worth. Uh, Corbin Burns, I know, Randall, bad, but Cy Young winner, scheduled to make $4 million. Like, that doesn't seem quite right. So it seems like the players are prioritizing, get these young stars paid more money in terms of 
uh, more incentive for being a top player in exchange of maybe giving back on how many years to get to free agency. And that's a good thing because in a lot of the negotiations in other sports, you often see the big stars try and pull the ladder up behind them to coin a phrase where they do what they can to make sure that they will get paid more, but they do very little for the younger players in the sport. So it's good to see the union leadership doing what they can to get the youngest players played. And you see that reflected in the proposed increase to the minimum salary. So good on the players union for not pulling the ladder up behind them and doing what they can to ensure that their youngest and most talented members are able to get paid fairly just the same. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, you, we all see the big salaries and we all even some of us think, you know, the big salaries are probably deflated a little bit than what they truly should be as well. You know, Price Harper, Mike Trout, whatever. But we, you don't realize that like 46% of the league last year made like less than the league minimum just because it's prorated through the days. And like, yeah. those are huge numbers. The main thrust of the union are guys just trying to make it in the league, you know, or just trying to get to the arbitration. Most of the, because the mid, the way, like the smart teams, they don't spend anymore on those mid priced veteran free agents because they're like, we can just get these young, cheap players to fulfill the role. So those have gone down. So the union now is trying to focus on getting guys who are making up the bulk of rosters to get them more money. So funnel the money there. So I, I think that's a smart priority for the union to have. And Jeremy, you mentioned how that much of the league made below minimum under the new minimum salary proposed 750, about 775, somewhere in there, a minor leaguer who comes up for 10 days and gets the prorated portion of his salary for those 10 days, even if he doesn't see another day on the major league roster that season, he will have made $40,000 just for those 10 days on the major league roster. That's more than most of these minor leaguers make in two or three or four full seasons in the minor leagues. That's huge to sell a guy that if you come up just for the 10 days and you don't see another day on the roster that entire season, you'll have made a, a decent one person salary just for those 10 days. So again, this proposed uh, increase to the minimum salary, that's huge. And that's a big factor in taking care of your guys who are probably going to be in the minor leagues for most of the season, but might come up for 10 days as an injury replacement. That's huge. And that's one of the things that I hope goes through. Yeah. And one other thing I just want to mention about that is what we don't, another thing like we don't think about is MLB actually has the lowest uh, league minimum salary of any of the four major leagues. I mean, hockey, the league minimum is like $875,000. Um, and that's hockey, which does not have giant salaries. So it was something the union, they didn't really push back on in the last, I don't think the minimum salary really moved much. And so now for them to be fighting for that to go up, uh, we'll see how far it goes, but that and getting more guys quick, quick to arbitration quicker and getting more of the payday. I think, it makes sense with the way we've seen the way teams operate, where, as I said before, like you don't want to sign those mid price, you know, 31, 32 veteran free agents that come here for two, three years. And they're kind of overpaid, you know, when you have like a prospect, you could just go do it for a million dollars. Like why do that? So it makes sense that the, the players would prioritize or the, yeah, would say, Hey, we need to get these guys paid more because the teams are kind of looking at this like a loophole or exploiting this. Yeah. You think about bullpens too. It's like a revolving door, especially if a guy has options. He's up for a week or two. He's back down in Iowa. He's back up. And I think the caliber, like the average bullpen pitcher today versus 10 or 20 years ago, it's a night and day difference. So that's a population too that ends up kind of getting shuttled back and forth that adds to the number of players that end up on major league rosters over the course of a season. 
Yeah, and let's, these are the guys. Yeah. Or sorry, I'm just gonna say those are the guys that make up the union. Like the union is a huge. It's not just the guys at the top. Yeah, but fans, particularly casual fans, they just see the Bryce Harpers and the the players getting these big mega deals and going, "Wow, these players are all millionaires. They're so spoiled." You know, so that there's there's that battle of public perception that the players are also sort of battling against as well. Um, let's talk about the owners though for a minute. I've got a great rant coming up here about Dick Monfort in a minute. Oh, uh, warming start. up, warming up. I can see you warming up in the yeah, bullpen, Ronan. He gave me a fastball. Like yeah. I, I've got lots of things I can bitch about with Dick Monfort, and it's, then he made it's a complete, percolating over there. He made a complete ass of himself this week on multiple fronts, and it's like a fastball for me. It's perfect. What have the owners done this week in terms of making concessions or saying, "Okay, we're going to give this to you as as players"? Well, one thing they did um, is they've accepted. Now they're still really far apart and we'll see how the process plays out, but they've accepted this idea of a, like a centralized pool for the top 30 pre-arbitration players where they will be paid some sort of bonus. And it appears it would be paid out of major league baseball, kind of like a central fund. So it's not necessarily the owners paying it out of their, I mean, they are, they are major league baseball, but not paying it out like each team's pocket or budget. Um, so that's interesting. And, and they offered 10 million and the players offered a hundred million for what that pool is and they want it and we'll see how it's done. Um, but it, I think that's actually a big, you know, I, if, I don't know. I, I kind of like the idea of the fact that the players can get a bonus. I don't know how to, they'll divvy it up or what it is, but I kind of like that idea. And as Jeremy said, they are very far apart in uh, what that pool would be. I think they're what a hundred million dollars apart or somewhere close to that at our last update. So you would hope they can find some way to meet a little more in the middle. But again, these are the, the slow bits of incremental progress that ultimately lead towards an agreement. As you said, we're still a long ways off, but the fact that they are moving towards a framework, that they're agreeing that, okay, we're going to have this. It's just a question of how much of this are we going to have? This is the inter incremental progress you need. And as incremental as it is, it's still good to see the two sides talking. Hopefully we get more updates like this in the days and in the, in the week, weeks, one or two weeks ahead, ahead of an agreement. So that's, that's the hope. And, all, and also to mention, the owners did uh, come up also as well on the minimum salary. Uh, they think they were at like 615000 uh, where the players Randall mentioned was like 775000 So that that's obviously a very far difference. But they have also recognized, like, look, we're, we should pay a little bit more Marley salary. So they've, they've come up. Like when the issue is like, okay, we agree on the concept we're far apart on numbers. That seems like, okay, those are, that's a good progress. Randall's guy, Bob Nightingale, two days ago, the uh, Tuesday this week, also reported that three agreements have been made or things that they've agreed upon. Universal DH, National League and American League. We knew this was coming. We've talked about it extensively on here. No real surprises there. Uh, number two, top level free agents, no longer tied to draft pick compensation. And number three, this one I don't like, the playoff field should expand. Owners want 14 teams. Players looking more at 12. I really don't want 14. I want 10. I like the way it is right now. Hopefully it ends up being 12. But we see the direction this is going. And we knew that there was going to be expanded playoffs because Major League Baseball's already sold the TV package for that to ESPN. Isn't that amazing? The deal was signed before anybody agreed to anything. Let's just hope it's 12 and not 14. That's it, that's very much the tail wagging the dog there. And by the way, if Nightingale is reporting these things, it's well, fact. I'm, 
I was going to say, if he's reporting these things, we may want to get used to seeing pitchers hit for a little while longer. He's he's very good as a, a 180. Believe the opposite of what he says. But yeah, we we everybody knew these things were coming. We've been prepping ourselves for the arrival of the universal DH for how many seasons now? Especially after seeing it in play yeah. in the twenty shortened 2020 season. And again, Ronan, I know you have your opinions on this, and you're you're always free to give your opinion on this. I do not push. Pitchers hitting out the door. Some of the greatest moments I've ever seen in a baseball game came from pitchers hitting. But uh, with the time ending, I do not mourn it. I, I am okay with the universal DH coming. Well, we disagree a little bit there. I do mourn it. I, I love National League style of baseball. It's the way the sport was created, where pitchers did everything. And, and that's sort of the way that it was. At the same time, I've given in. Right. I've realized it's inevitable. It was coming. It's been building for many, many years. Something that's helped me normalize it, the dork that I am, OOTP. I've been <laughs> playing with the DH rules. So I've been looking at Cubs rosters. I'm on a 2030 sim right now. And I've seen a DH. And honestly, it's it sort of normalized that for me. It, it's exposure therapy, whatever you want to call it. It's getting me used to it. But I knew it was a done deal and it was happening. I will say this, though Kerry Wood, total badass. Jake Arrieta, total badass. Travis Wood, total badass. Carlos Zambrano, Zambrano total, total badass. John Lester. And I love those moments. John Lester, total badass. Again, Mark Burley, pitchers, total badass. Sure, fine. I was Mark at that Burley. game. Uh, and for the record, I was driving on the highway two days ago. In fact, the day of the, the Hall of Fame announcement, and I saw a White Sox license plate that said MB56HOF. So... I guess we know how that person voted on their ballot. Again, sure. pitcher, pitchers hitting. Did you see Bark's uh, pit bulls in the back of the seat? I did not. I, I drove around the car and went about my business. But again, pitchers hitting have given me some of the most exciting moments in in my time watching baseball. I have been present. I've been at Wrigley for a John Lester home run. There's nothing like it. One of the most, the unlikeliest player and spot in the lineup to hit the ball out of the park. Again, there's nothing like it. I, I'm not pushing it out the door, but knowing that it is leaving, I accept it. Yeah. They're also one of the most fair. demoralizing things that can happen to Paul. Absolutely. That's <laughs> when the opposing pitcher takes one out, especially like on a blustery winter, a Wrigley day into the basket. Um, but yeah, as these guys said, you know, it was coming in 2020, in 2021, I was kind of like, Oh, I forgot pitchers are hitting now. Yeah. <laughs> I was so used to what happened in 2020. Um, but yeah, you know, they did meet on some non-core economic issues. So I, it makes sense that they would have these types of agreements come out and the players were always going, they, they don't, they always were going to agree to the expanded playoffs. They were just holding it out because it, it was a negotiating tool yeah. for them to not agree to it until they get things that they want. Um, but as you said, like they made that deal in 2020, like during the COVID before COVID for the saying, Hey, we're selling this round. So that, that was always going to happen. And that worries me. We did talk about this last week. I don't want to double down on it, but the fact that there are extra days coming at the end of the year, the owners said this week, Hey, we're willing to lose some games. If we need to, they'd much rather have those extra games in October on TV with the big viewership than some cold weather games at the beginning of April. I don't want to hear that. I made my case last week. You can't miss any games, but it's in the owner's best interest to at least bluff on that and say that, yeah, we're willing to miss some games. So I shouldn't, but let's just say I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt for right now. But while we're talking about owners, Dick Monfort earlier this week, he's at the meetings and, and I'll say this, there was a photograph of him walking into the venue ahead of the meeting. And a lot of people were poking fun at him for what he was wearing. And I thought that was inappropriate. He had purple shoes on. If I owned the Colorado Rockies, 
I'd be wearing purple shoes. I'd have a purple suit on, like the Prince thing, right? I'd just be walking down the street. I own the Colorado Rockies. You'd be dressed like the Joker. He also had a tote bag in his hand that's sitting behind me here. I got the same thing. I was cracking up when I saw it. I'm like, oh, I remember that thing. They give those things away all the time at Coors Field. Anyway, Dick Monfort's in there. He apparently insulted multiple players and the players' reps when he said some Major League Baseball owners have a difficult time funding or financing owning a baseball team and making money. And he highlighted things like paying for security and COVID implications as being a big problem. I mean, what, what are you talking about? Coors Field, it's $24 for a double Jack and Coke at Coors Field. They're fourth in attendance in Major League Baseball since the Rockies joined the National League in 1993. They're fourth in Major League Baseball in total attendance since 1993. And he's saying that paying $15 an hour for a security guy is too much for the team. What is he talking about? If I were the players, I would have been insulted by that. Yeah, and I think it's uh, notable that Dick Monfort was not in the room the next day. Yes. He was in the room Monday. He was not in the room on Tuesday. And, I, and so I think that's a pretty notable uh, thing because, you know, it, you know, when you're in those, like there are things you just don't say. And yeah. now it's tough when you're a billionaire because billionaires, you know, are ten, probably have a tendency to just get away with whatever they want. But like, you know, it's probably like herding cats, Rob Manfred's job of all these guys that think that they're the smartest person in the room. I mean, a lot of them are very smart, obviously, but, you know, or think they're God's gift. And so, but like, you just, if you have an issue with all that, then you sell the team and you sell yes. it for the massive profit that, you know, that you, you purchased it at a much lower rate that the team value has gone up tremendously since the Montfort brothers purchased it and Dick forced out his brother or whatever. Um, so like, he's going to make a ton of money whenever he ends up selling this team. So if he, if he's having problems financing, running the team, then he can always sell it to somebody else. And we we've heard Ricketts say not maybe not in as many words but kind of hint at this a couple of times talking about you know biblical losses that that quote that just won't die in the the covid shortened season with no fans talking about how you know they, they just don't profit as much off these teams as they'd like to we've heard a lot of different owners make some version of this same excuse and the answer from us rank and file ground level people is always the same. If you're not making the money you want to make, you are more than free to sell the team. I don't think there's anybody out there, uh, maybe except for their fellow owners that has even the slightest bit of sympathy for this particular plea. I don't know, Randall. There's a lot of people that take the side of the owners. Well, yeah, you know, we can't help sure. that, Jeremy. Everyone's got opinions, and some of them are awful. Well, I, I think there's a lot of people that are like, I don't know. They just do. I mean, I I, I do imagine that COVID was a tremendous loss, especially for teams like the Cubs that make it all on uh, attendance. But, yeah, you, you, those team values are go up so high that they could always just sell a team and make tons of money. And they don't make it all on attendance, but the Cubs no, more so than, yeah, than other, other teams, than Tampa right. Rays. <laughs> more so than other teams. That is a huge revenue generator. There's lots of other places the Major League Baseball's making a lot of money, including things people don't think about, like MLB Advanced Media and the billions of dollars that that company has generated for Major League Baseball owners. Uh, but it's it's cringy to see an owner talking that way. And it, it just it, it kind of defies all logic, too. When they talk, they, like, that's the thing you're supposed to think is you're an owner, but you never say out loud. And he went ahead and said it. And for him to be in that room and to do that, I understand why the players were so upset by it. The other thing, too, that's insulting, just living in the shadow of Coors Field, they built McGregor Square here. The city of Denver gave that to the Rockies for $1. 
in exchange for extending their lease at Coors Field. And what the Rockies have done on that land is they built a hotel, they built condos, they've built office space, there's bars and restaurants, there's piles of money over there. And this guy's talking about security being a problem in funding a major league baseball franchise. It's, it's really off-putting. And the real loser in all of this are Colorado Rockies fans. And I go to a lot of games. I, yeah, I certainly pull for the team. I'm a Cubs fan, though. I don't really care when the Rockies lose. It really sucks for baseball fans here in Colorado because their owner does not care about winning baseball games, and that's evident by the way he talks. He says it. It's crazy. Yeah, it was not a good thing. And uh, I, like I said, I, it's to me, it's completely notable that he did not make it into the, the room the yeah. next day. Addition by subtraction in the negotiations. But lay off the shoes. You know, if I own the Cubs, blue shoes. I'm sure we'll, well, I'm sure we'll get into it later in the show. But George McCaskey showed up to O'Hare wearing a Bears mask, a yeah. Bears jacket, jacket and orange and blue shoes. And people were giving him a hard time. I know. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Like, just, that's exactly the like, way. That's the, le- that's the least of his crimes. <laughs> yeah. If I were the Rockies owner, I would walk around downtown Denver with Dinger behind me all the time. I just pay whoever's Dinger or multiple Dingers to just follow me around, be an ambassador for the team. I think that would be fun. Now, is that a herd of dingers? As dinger is a triceratops, they were a herd animal. So you would hire a whole herd of dingers. There's really great footage of dinger skiing this week that the Rocky social media team put out. It's, it's pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> I'm so, just, yeah, yeah, picturing you with the dingers. Like they used, I think they used to like circle the wagons kind of when like a, a, a predator would come. So I'm imagining them all like circling you, protecting you from whatever the predator is. All the horns, the horns facing outward to protect the uh, the smallest member of the herd, and that is Ronan. When you're dealing with a mascot triceratops, well, you know I've got an embarrassing dinger story, and I'm going to share it really quickly, and then we're going to shift gears, and it's going to be a really weird juxtaposition about what we're talking about now, what we're getting into next. But I I make a point of meeting Dinger as often as I can. When I first moved to Colorado, my first experience at Coors Field after having moved here, I'd been to the park prior to that was I went to a college hockey game before the uh, outdoor stadium game thing that they did at Coors Field at the Avalanche and all that. So Digger was there. It wasn't sold out or anything. Got a chance to meet him. But this past year, I went to the final game of the year at Coors Field. It was a midweek day game, played hooky from work. I'm like, I want to go out there and be out there. I had a couple over the course of the game. Dick Monfort got my uh, $24 Jack and Coke doubles. And I saw Dinger alone on the concourse. And I went over to him and I got like, four or five pictures taken with him and there were full body shots. You know, my fly is down in all of those. photos. (laughs) So you've got a triceratops and a flyceratops. Oh, it's bad. And you got to be careful yelling out for Dinger at those Rocky games. Yes. Yeah. It's a sensitive name (laughs) if uh, they mishear you. But uh, I love Dinger. Not so much a fan of Dick Monfort. I was cracking up though, seeing him in the headlines this week. Uh, Good news though. Some progress. The thing is if spring training is to start on time, we need a resolution in, in certainly the next 10 days or so at the most. So not much optimism there. We haven't been optimistic on a, on a start time for spring training, but it's getting close now. Uh, we're getting closer and closer here to the start of the season championship this weekend for the NFL, a week off the Super Bowl, and then we're supposed to have baseball. So it could be a tense couple of weeks here, but at least they're talking to each other. Yep. Cool. Let's shift gears from Dinger. To something, this is sad, but we want to honor the life of a former Cubs baseball player and a former Cubs coach. We got word earlier today that Gene Kleins passed away. Uh, an amazing life, though, that he had. Was a Major League Baseball player throughout most of the 1970s. Most notable for his time with the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
couple of division championships there. Of course, he won the World Series as well. In 1971, the year they won the World Series, September of that year, Pittsburgh had the first all-minority lineup in Major League Baseball history, and Gene Kleins was right in the middle of that. So pretty cool stuff there. He played for the Cubs from 1977 to 1979, went on to be the first base coach for the Cubs for a couple of years, and then came back with Dusty in 0304 and was with the team until 2006. This guy had an amazing life. And what I love about Gene Kleins, he played for the Cubs, he coached for the Cubs. That's really neat to get both angles there as a member of this franchise. Yeah, what I remember most about Gene Kleins, I think, I, I guess it'd be more like 05, 06 as the hitting coach and with all the lemons. And oh, yeah. that's, just, that's just like what I think about on the bench, uh, Gene Kleins and the lemons. Trying to make it work with Jose Macias. Yeah, Jose Macias. Yeah. Maybe you know, guys a, like that. Yeah. When a team is, when when one of your teams is good, you you absorb kind of every facet of them. And even the base coaches become ingrained in your memory. And Gene Kleins is one of those memory. I know 2004 was a, a very formative team for a lot of us. And there is Gene Kleins always standing there at first base, hand on the shoulder of whoever was standing there. And it's a, a terrible thing that he passed away. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this with Gene Kleins as well. When he was a player in the early 1970s, so he's with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's in a clubhouse with Roberto Clemente, uh, Willie Stargell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're talking about some of the great names, these iconic names in baseball history. He was a coach with the Giants before he came to the Cubs. So there he had Barry Bonds, right? Right in the middle of that manic season that he had in 2001. And we're going to talk about Barry Bonds in a little bit here on the podcast. Then he goes to the Cubs and he's got Sammy. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That guy was around some of the all-time greats, and he got to share a clubhouse with a lot of those guys. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, good life for Gene Kleins. Yeah. And these these individuals, these individuals are the backbone of the sport. We can talk all day about the players, and we should talk all day about the players and the best players at that. But for every great player, there are 10 coaches, 10 individuals who shared a clubhouse with them who could tell you so much about those players and coaches like that who had maybe a relatively short playing career, but went on to coach in a clubhouse with some of the great players of all time. Those individuals are the backbone of the sport. And every one of them that passes away is a story to be told. Well, cool guy, amazing life, sad story here that he passes away. So fare thee well, Gene Kleins, 1971 World Series champion, Almost got it in 2003 as well. What could have been with that Cubs team, but uh, alas, didn't happen. And we know how all that goes. But thinking about Gene Klein here today, um, let's talk about this Cubs minor leaguers. Shifting gears here again, some really cool news coming out that since November, the Chicago Cubs have been housing up to 30 of their top prospects, some of the biggest names in the minor league, at their spring training facility down in Mesa. They're putting them up in housing feeding them a couple times a day, going through nutrition, conditioning, now getting into some baseball workouts and all that. I think this is really neat because the thing that comes to mind for me is, yeah, you've got all these great names down there, names that we think are going to be on the Cubs. They're bonding right now. They're hanging out. They're building a culture and identity that we're all hoping is going to translate to Wrigley Field in the next couple of years. That was a big part of it. Um, uh, it's actually kind of a very Theo thing because when Theo talked about when they had that first wave of players, your, your Schwarbers, your Bryants, your Baezes, he wanted them all to, to grow up through the minor leagues together, win together, learn how to play together. And that's kind of, you know, that there's like this Theo aspect of that where they're all going to be together. They're, you know, I think Brennan Davis is roommates with Ryan Jensen. And, and so they're living together. They're, they're experienced. It's like a 
this is a big deal. This is November to February. This is like three, three, four months yeah. of them all together training, working out, and it's competitive from what you know. There, there are stories of them like you know, because the first couple of months was all basically you know uh, strength training, and the, so they they have all this computerized gear, computerized times. They're talking trash to each other. They're trying to set different records. So it's an interesting thing because you know they've had you know instructional league and camps in the past, but this is like a real kind of development program they've set up for like three months. And the, the list of names at this camp is a who's who of players we hope impact this organization for years to come. Reggie Preciado is down there. Brendan Davis is down there. Christian Hernandez, top international free agent signing on the part of the Cubs, is down there. Ed Howard is down there. Jordan and Wogu. Basically, everyone that they've brought into this organization with any kind of pedigree in the past two, three seasons is at this camp. And this is great to see. And one thing that uh, specifically they focused on, and you, Ronan, you touched on this earlier, is that the first two months of the camp were some baseball work, some, some light hitting, some mound work, but it was mostly strength, conditioning, plyometrics, nutrition, yoga. And one of the things that the Cubs identified as a problem that they felt needed to be solved was that they felt that these high schools players or these guys coming out of the out of the Dominican or out of Venezuela they are putting being put into competitive situations without necessarily the body the physicality the conditioning to handle it and this is one of the cubs ways of trying to solve that is two months of instilling good exercise good habits into these players and that's invaluable we can talk all day about hitting infrastructure and pitching infrastructure in the pitching lab but if the players can't handle that physically it's all for naught so this is an excellent excellent decision on the part of the cubs I just think something we've been talking about on this podcast is invest in the farm. And that means feed them. We, we all were celebrating the fact that minor league players moving forward will be housed and they're not going to be living in as much poverty as they try to move forward with their professional career. When I saw this happening, I think, yeah, this is great. We absolutely should celebrate it. But also like, why hasn't this been happening? Like, th shouldn't this be something that is the norm? Like, I don't want to bemoan the fact that they're doing it. We should celebrate the fact that they're doing it, but it's also got me here going, why hasn't this been a thing for a longer time? This seems like a tremendous idea for establishing an identity within your system. And you hope that this isn't just like a one-off season thing because yeah. the specter of, not Jeremy Specter, the specter spelled differently. You hope this is not a one-off season thing because the specter of a, not a full spring training or a non-traditional spring training looms. You hope this is something that the Cubs are going to do every off season from here on you're going to have new prospects coming in you're going to have new international international signings coming in you want to continually get these guys in here where they can learn good nutrition where they can learn good exercises so this is the sort of thing i hope the cubs continue doing every off season from here on there's absolutely no reason not to there's no reason financially and there's no reason developmentally to not make this an annual thing yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned before, I traditionally like most teams and the Cubs, they would all have their instructional leagues that the Cubs had, you know, monkeyed around with a little bit over when those times would be in the offseason. And they would have, you know, smaller development camps and some other type of player driven seminars and stuff. But this is like it an intense thing. This is like as this is like an entire offseason for the most part. So yeah. um yeah, it's and from what I've read it, you know, they they described it as a, a pilot project. So that makes me think this is almost like a test run. You know, we'll see how this goes, and then maybe in the future we'll expand it. We'll we'll do some things a little differently. Um, and yeah, they and it said that this is probably like a high three figure expense, or excuse me, high six figure 
three figure high six figure expense for the for the Cubs, you know, to put in. So that that is a uh, a nice chunk of money to invest in all of this. And it's interesting, you know, just I like the idea of getting all the guys together and and working out together. Um, they paid for trips home for a lot of these guys uh, for Thanksgiving, for That's Christmas, because cool. they were they were there during their times. The international players, I think, show have showed up a little bit later. I don't they haven't been there the whole time. They've kind of probably popped in during January. I think they're actually start. Most players are starting like baseball specific work as of now in January. But, yeah, it's a cool idea. And one other thing I would note, and I don't know what it means, but the Cubs hired uh, a guy named Adam Beard uh, two years ago to be their strength and you know, conditioning guy from the Cleveland Browns. And I thought that was an interesting hire for their system. And cause I, I didn't really, you know, he's a, it was a football guy and a rugby guy before that. And so it was like an interesting hire to come in for the baseball system when they were trying to reach out. And he, he, he's gone now. He left uh, recently, like this off season. So I'm curious if this was something like he was preparing for, or if they've decided to go in a different direction. Um, because one thing I've read is they've in- instituted more like driveline kind of aspects They're kind of focused on more cool. what they do driveline. So I, I just thought that was interesting that he left at the same time this was happening. Well, I don't say this often, but all of this excitement down in Mesa makes me wish I was down in Phoenix a little bit more often. I don't want to live there, but it would be cool to be down there and see if there have been some awesome photographs that have been shared on social media. It's just cool for me to see Ed Howard out there in Cubs apparel. You can kind of see, okay, a couple of years, maybe that guy is at Wrigley Field at shortstop. Just go the Theo and Jed route, Ronan. Just get down there for a couple months out of every year, rent a what I'm sure is a real nice condo somewhere, probably with a pool out back. And you can uh yeah. let's say winter there, but I know you're a winter guy, so you can yeah. you can spring, you can you can spend spring in Phoenix, just not that, summer. That's the time. I mean, I, I always get sort of envious of folks down there really two times of the year, the spring training time where you got all the teams and then the Arizona fall league time where it's like, Oh, that'd be a lot of fun to go out and see those games, but it's cool seeing it. I'm just wondering if these minor league guys are getting that the Illini beat Michigan state, Jeremy's cocky swagger because the major leaguers are locked out. <laughs> They're the Kings of the Hill right now. It's Without crazy. Kofi and Curbelo, I, I should add. Yeah, right. I just wonder if they're like, Hey, this is kind of cool. Like they're getting the sort of the major league treatment here while the major leaguers can't show up to work. They're the top dogs in the Mesa complex. You got to find the uh, whatever furnished apartment complex they're living in. So you can find one of those condos, get the Cubs to pay for that for you. But yeah, that, you know, they got the run in the mill of the, of all of Sloan park. I would guess they get to play play it probably in the, you know, the main ballpark, all the backfields as well. You know, anytime they need to use the equipment, they don't have to wait for, you know, an Anthony River or a Harvard or bias be behind them. So it's probably fun for them to just go out there and be the focus. Yeah, there's probably not a whole lot of uh, no. You can't use the 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 weight machine right now because Bryant needs to get his his reps in. So yeah, it's probably real nice for them, as you said, to have the full run of the facility, all the backfields and everything. We'll see what comes of it too, though. But awesome photos. Hop on Twitter, you can see that and see some of the faces of who we hope is going to be that next generation of of great Cubs players. Uh, let's talk about a past generation of great Cubs players last week here on the podcast. Jeremy's idea, by the way, lots of fun. We went with it. We did a draft where we ended up selecting the best Major League Baseball roster we could of all-time Cubs. So once a guy was taken, you couldn't take him. What we ended up with were three different rosters here. And let's just have ourselves go through and, and name our rosters. So Jeremy, start with you here. Who's your manager? Go through the lineup. Who did you end up picking? Again, knowing that other guys were off the board because Randall and I had ended up selecting other players. 
Yeah, and I, I I believe I had the number one pick as well. So it's good to start with me here. Uh, my manager I took was Lupinella, not with the number one pick on manager. But uh, just, so just straight down the line, starting a catcher, I had Gabby Hartnett. Uh, first base, I had Anthony Rizzo. Second base, Ryan Sandberg. Shortstop and my number one pick overall, I believe, Ernie Banks. Third baseman, Chris Bryant. Left fielder, Alfonso Soriano, an interesting pick. Center fielder, Hack Wilson. Right fielder, the Hawk, my guy, Andre Dawson. Mm. Starting pitcher, Greg Maddox, Mad Dog. And my relief pitcher was uh, Bruce Suter with the play-by-play announcer, the dulcet tones, as Randall would say, of Jack Brickhouse. That's the good stuff there. That's your team. Any regrets? We did it live. We did it in the moment. We had to pick the guys when we did. When you look at your roster now, do you feel like you had an omission that you maybe missed out on? Uh, yeah, my regret, I would say, and, and I thought about a lot, like, I don't think Alfonso Soriano necessarily fits. I just knew I had an opening in left fielder, and he was kind of the first left fielder that popped in my head, and I don't know, he had a good couple of years. Uh, I probably would have gone a different route in the outfielder, just thinking about it a little bit more. And I think I even mentioned a few guys, like, you know, an Andy Pafko, you could probably move over there, or some other, I mean, Hank Sauer, great player. Uh, sure. Other players you, that we didn't even mention that could probably fit, and I just kind of... It was a guy who just kind of popped in my head towards the end. Uh, Andre Dawson, not the best right fielder either, but he's my guy, so I'm sticking with it. Good stuff, though. We'll get a chance to kind of reflect on all this again here. But, Randall, let's hear your team top to bottom. My team, managed by Joe Madden. Uh, Wilson Contreras is your catcher. Derek Lee, your first baseman. Nico Horner, the pick for which I got the the most the most you-know-what, is the second baseman. Javier Baez is at short. Aramis Ramirez is at third. An outfield of Kyle Schwarber, Dexter Fowler, and Jason Hayward, left, center, and right. Fergie Jenkins is a starting pitcher, and Craig Kimbrell is your relief pitcher with games called by none other than Pat Hughes. You know, I've gotten a lot of shit for the Nico Horner pick, and I admit I would have done that differently. That's fair. I completely blanked on blanked on the fact that Zobrist was still available on the board when I made that second base wow. pick, like Jeremy. Uh, you know, I picked a name that came to mind and maybe did not necessarily – uh, fit on an all-time Cubs, but I said, hey, you know, good defensive second baseman to uh, fit in with the rest of the roster. So I definitely would have picked a different second baseman if I were to go back and redo my draft. That's a fair criticism. I got to ask you about right field. I love Jay Hay, great speed. Yeah, I have a few questions All-time well. great right fielder. I don't know about that, Randall. Well, okay, Sosa was off the board. You took Sosa with your first pick. That would have been my pick. But again, you, you sniped him away from me. I don't know if it counts hmm. as a snipe, but you did take him. And again, in the moment, if, if we did this draft with a list of like all-time Cubs, maybe separated out by position, it probably would have gone different. I could probably find no shortage of better right fielders to go out there and play right field instead of Jason Hayward. But of course, we're in the moment. We don't want any pauses in our, our draft here. I came up with the last remaining notable right fielder that I could think of, and that's how you end up with Jason Hayward playing right field for you. So again, another pick I probably would have done a little bit differently. And Ronan, you, of course, have never made any mistakes ever. in your draft, ever, in your draft or anything else. Do us the honor of running down your roster. Well, we got to start at manager. And I went with Popeye because who doesn't love Don Zimmer? Here's the roster ended up with Jody Davis at catcher, Cubs playoff member, Mark Grace at first base, my guy in the 90s, maybe not the best broadcaster in the world, but a great player, great hitter, and a good glove. Ben Zobrist at second base, Joe Tinker at short. What would that look like? Tinker to Zobrist to Grace. Ron Sano, the Hall of Famer at third. 
Billy Williams, the Hall of Famer in left. Here's where I messed up. And I got to eat crow here because I took the most controversial player, arguably, in Cubs history. And I put him out of position in center field. So this is my bad. I put Cap Anson in center field. And what's weird, and I haven't gotten to the bottom of, I feel like I've made this mistake in the past. Like, I've grown up thinking that Cap Anson was a center fielder. He was a first baseman. So that's on me. Maybe I could justify that a first baseman that long ago could play center field now. That definitely couldn't have happened. But I went with Cap Anson, and I got to own that. In fairness, Cubs' all-time war leader of offensive players is Cap Anson. So, at least my questionable picks were playing. Jackass. At least my true. at least my questionable picks were uh, playing in position. Well, Nico Horner's played like forty games in the majors, so pump the yeah. breaks there. Okay. I, well, the the the, the, the funny thing about the Cap Anson thing was when you drafted him, I was like, oh, Randall or me, Ronan's got his first baseman in my head, and that's what I was thinking. And then we were filling them all out on a sheet, and when it came back, I I wasn't really thinking about the fact that you had already drafted Cap Anson. Yeah. You had first base open, and you took Mark Grace, and I was like, oh, that's a good pick. Not remembering that you had already taken Cap Anson, but like. And I didn't realize it until I saw it on the Twitter account. I'm like, wait a minute, Kev Anson's not a center fielder. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I dropped the ball there and I made the whole case about he, yep. the decisions that he made held back the sport of baseball and they were heinous. And of course, I wasn't justifying that. I was talking about the baseball player and he was a great baseball player in his time. Unfortunately, wasn't a center fielder. So that didn't work out too hot for me. If I were to take a different center fielder, I think the direction I would have gone and named Jeremy that you just said, Andy Pafko. I think that's where I messed up and I should have gone that way. I looked at the Cubs all-time war leader in center field, a guy by the name of Jimmy Ryan. He was born in 1863. So that's not a guy that I was thinking about when I was putting together this roster. But Andy Pafko, if I could do it over again, that's the guy I would have put in center field. Here's a position... Without a doubt, my number one pick, I'll do number one every time in the Hall of Fame of my heart, Sammy Sosa, number 21 in right field. Mordecai Three Finger Brown, the pitcher. I tied that to Coy Hill. That was fun last week. And then the closer, the shooter, Rod Beck. 1998 Rod Beck. He'll strike you out while drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette. That's the guy that I want at the end of the ball game. And I had none other than Harry Carey in the booth as the play-by-play broadcaster. So overall, look, I'm pretty happy with my team. I messed up with Cap Anson, though, and that's on me. So what can you do? Besides the mess-up, uh, is that your main regret, or are you think you got a pretty solid team over there? It is a solid team. I think there's balance. I got left-handed hitters. I got right-handed hitters. I got sluggers. I got guys that can slap the ball and get on base. Maybe not a ton of speed, if you want to make an argument against this team. Um, also, we did talk about this last week. Clubhouse chemistry. Yeah, I don't know right? about that. <laughs> Savy Sosa and Billy Williams next to Cap Anson. That could be tense. So, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. But if one person could keep that clubhouse together, it's Don Zimmer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, I, well, you got Harry Carey and Rod Beck. That should be fun. Yeah, uh, hanging lots out of together. beer. <laughs> well, Randall's <laughs> got the clubhouse chemistry. I mean, all these guys basically played together already. <laughs> Everybody on his team, except for Fergie, played into the 2010s. So, like, That's I was just looking at it right now. His outfield is the World Series outfield for the most part. I mean, obviously, yeah. Shorber's DHing, but <laughs> it's pretty funny. And, I just the Nico Horner pick, Rand. I'm sorry, Randall, but no, uh, no, that's fair. I'll, three I'll, Hall of I Famers I was thinking of, and then Nico Horner popped up. I'm like, there's <laughs> Rogers Hornsby, there's Johnny Evers, there's you know, Glenn Becker, there's 
so many guys. <laughs> no, that's that's very fair, Jeremy. Like like I, one of my many jerseys, I will both wear that and own that. Not, and I know, not, not I know you wouldn't. Weird. I mean, Mark DeRosa. I know you wouldn't have taken him, but like Aston Russell's got some ten WAR. I don't know if Nico Warner's ever going to get to ten WAR. Yeah, but you know, if if you're gonna bring, if you're gonna boil it down to that, World Series I feel hero. A little, I feel a little better about picking Nico if you're gonna boil it down that way. I hope he deserves to one day be. And you are correct. And Rand, we look back at this, and Randall knew it. And Nico Horner is an all-time great Cub, and I Absolutely. hope that happens. Randall Randall called it in early 2022. Do we want to take our three lineups potentially and try and distill out an all-time lineup from uh, our? I'll three? go one step further. You don't need to take anybody we picked. If there's any other misses that we have here, it's fair game. But I think that's a good point. A listener, my dad, said, "Hey, put together one team." It's something he wanted to hear, so I thought that's a good idea. Um, so let's start at manager. Put our brains together here. If you're going to have one all-time manager in Cubs history, Randall, is it your guy, Joe Madden? Can you make the case there for Joe? Uh, yeah, uh, he is the one Cubs World Series winning manager this century. How's that? Sounds good to me. Jeremy, yeah. what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, Joe had his issues, obviously, but you know what? He won the only World Series in the last hundred so odd years. So he's the only Cubs manager, the only Cubs manager photographed holding the World Series trophy in color. I'll put it that way. I will say, I think that we're all doing a disservice to Jim Riggleman, who at least should be in the conversation. But he can be the Joe bench Madden coach. Go. Joe Madden, enough. yeah. Joe Madden manager, Jim Riggleman bench coach. Only Riggleman's aviators. I, I just want Jim Riggleman's aviators. Just the aviators sitting there next to Joe. Yeah. All the glasses, coaching yeah. staff. Uh, let's go to catcher, though. It's got to be Gabby, right? Who else other than Gabby? I think it would be Gabby. I mean, Wilson, who knows, could maybe one day. But as of right now, Gabby. I'm good with Gabby Hartnett. All right, let's move over to first base. If you are putting together a Cubs all-time team, is it Cap Anson or who do we make the case for at first base here? You know, it's it's you could make the case for Cap Anson. To me, it's between Rizzo and Grace. I think Grace had the longer tenure as a Cub and was maybe the better pure hitter, but I think Rizzo's Rizzo's highs were a lot higher than Gracie's highs. Rizzo, of course, being the, the heart and soul of a World Series winning team, something Mark Grace can not say, can, can't say that he did. So it's between Rizzo and Grace for me. I would entertain either one. I think if you want to go into like the 1800s and stuff like that, I think Cap Anson would be the guy. Um, so I would be comfortable putting Cap Anson there. Uh, if not, I think it would be Mark Grace for me. But I, I think it would be one of those. So I'd be comfortable with Cap Anson there, like because he does have basically the most war in Cubs history. Yeah. I mean, I that's where I'm at too. I mean, he's number one. Despite all the issues there, you make a good case for Anthony Rizzo. Mark Grace, 12 more war as a Cub in his time. Now, look, he didn't have the World Series, he didn't have the pieces around him. He didn't have Theo. Let's say that about Mark Grace. I love Mark Grace, though. We're all products of 1990s Cubs baseball. And if you watch the Cubs in 1990, WGN. Harry Carey, Dave Baseball, Mark Grace is right there in the middle of all of it. And despite the issues that he's had beyond his career, I love Mark Grace, and he will always be a Cubs hero in my mind. Yeah. But it's Cap. Sorry. Sorry. Cap Anson, Cap Anson, is, our, Cap Anson is our first baseman. Second base, I can't imagine there's a whole lot we of We know who it here. is. We don't, we don't need to deliberate over this. Ryan Nico Sandberg, Horner. Of course. <laughs> it's, yep, it's clearly there Nico. There he is. Going to punch him in right now. Ryan Sandberg, of course, is our all-time second baseman on the Cubs draft team. Not a whole lot of debate here. I'll jump us to shortstop, and I'm going to lead with this one. I think 
I think I have to go Ernie here. I just think that importance to the franchise, his career as a player, everything he accomplished as an individual, I think you have to go Ernie Banks. I think you could make a case for Javi. And I think Ernie Banks, if he were still with us today, he might tell you that it should be Javi. What are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know. It's Mr. Don't think, Cub, Randall. It's I don't know where he's Mr. Cub, but you don't, th- you don't think that Ernie Banks would have loved watching Javier Baez? I'm sure That's he would That's not what you said, though. That's not you. You said who, we're talking about who is the starting shortstop for the Cubs all-time team. And I said it's Ernie. Not Javier Baez. No. I said, didn't say it was Javi. I said you could make a case. I didn't say it would be the correct I, I, case. I think Ernie Banks is more clearly a shortstop spot than Ryan Sandberg. And that's why I've just that's why I've just penciled him in. You can no do like a Rogers Hornsby thing at second. No base. problem at all. Ernie, Ernie Banks, Banks is a shortstop was a phenomenal baseball player. Ernie Banks yeah. is your all time Cubs shortstop. We move to third base now. What do we think about the Cub at the hot corner? Uh, we know the answer there too. Yeah. Do we? I well I, I don't know. I well, see right. okay I'm good. going towards well, I'm going okay. Santo. I'm going well, Santo. Randall, I, I thought Randall was going to say Patrick Wisdom. But it's I, obviously no. Ron Sando. Oh, okay. Yeah, We're all, I Ron thought Sando. one of you guys were going to say Brian, so I, I was I wasn't sure. No, no, okay. no, no. Santo, I think it's, Santo it's is Santo. our third. All right, we're all agreed. We've all got good. the all-retired number middle left side of the infield here. That, that's Santo, fine with me. Between I mean, Sandberg, R- Banks, and Santo. Randall was about to make an argument for Javi Baez, so I didn't know where we were going on that. Like I said, Patrick Wisdom after that. Magic <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Magical 2021 season. Broke the Cubs rookie record for home. How could you not make him your all-time third baseman? Left field, I feel like it's pretty obvious again. Yeah, And you've got so. a Hall of Famer against two pretty good players. Uh, Billy Williams pretty easily beats out Alfonso Soriano and Kyle Schwarber. No disrespect to either of the latter two, but again, sure. Hall of Famer versus two decent players. Center field. And Hank Sauer. You know, pour one out for Hank yeah, Sauer. Like I said, yeah. I, that would definitely be a name I probably overlooked. Yeah, a center field. Uh, I feel like there could be a little bit of debate here. One of our center fielders was only a Cub for two seasons. One of them wasn't a center fielder at all. Uh, <laughs> so that leaves us Dexter Fowler versus Hack Wilson versus Cap Anson, to whatever extent you want to consider yeah. him a center fielder. I think Jeremy had this one right. I think so, too. I think Hack Wilson is your center fielder from this draft. Right field, again, it seems like there's no debate. And a lot of these no debaters are coming from uh, Jeremy's team and Ronan's team. So I'm not I'm not getting a whole lot of points here. And that's okay, because there are some of these that I don't deserve a whole lot of points for. But I feel like we're all in agreement. Sammy Sosa is our right fielder. Yes. Oh, yes. All right. Now we get to a position where you can actually have some debate. And that's starting pitcher. To recap, I have Ferguson Jenkins. Jeremy has Greg Maddox. And Ronan has Mordecai three-finger Brown. Ronan, a big fan of the players with uh, fewer than the five fingers digits. on a hand. If yeah. you put or extra fingers. Hand, or extra fingers. That's true. Or uh, uh, Alfonseca. El Popo. If you put, Popo. If you put Coy Hill's hand together with Mordecai Brown's hand, you have six fingers. And if you add Alfonseca. Antonio Alfonseca's hand, you get to 11 fingers. So that's Cub finger math. If anybody wants to learn that out there, where do, where are we going with starting pitching? Randall, I think you had this right with Fergie Jenkins and um, a big part of it. He had about a hundred more games in a Cubs uniform than Greg Maddox. So the, the extension of his career sort of extended it, but I mean, Fergie, you can't go wrong with Fergie and Randall. I thought you had the, the nail right on the money there with regards to him as the starting pitcher. What about you, Jeremy? I agree. I think, I think it's Fergie. I think Fergie had, you know, Fergie was more in his prime when he was a Cubs pitcher than Greg Maddox was as a Cubs pitcher. I mean, Greg Maddox had 1992. He was very good, but he he did most of his damage for the Atlanta Braves. And I think Fergie was, is more of a Cub than Greg Maddox is 
than Greg Maddox. So I, I, although it's interesting to note that both guys pretty much started their career as Cubs left and then came back at the end of their careers. And we move to our last position in the lineup here. That of course being relief pitcher. Again, I have Craig Kimbrell, Jeremy has Bruce Suter and Ronan has the shooter (laughs) Rod Beck. Where do we go with this one? Ronan, you've got the first comment here. Yeah, I think we all got it wrong. Now, I love all of the picks that we had, and I love Rod Beck, but if we were going to name the Cubs' top relief pitcher all time, I would go with Lee Smith, the Cubs' all-time saves leader. He happens to also be Cubs' all-time saves leader. I think that's the correct answer as much as I love all the other names that we've thrown out there. You know, I have no problem with that. Jeremy, what do you think? I see when I was drafting, I was thought of Lee Smith, and I chose Bruce Suter over Lee Smith because I thought Bruce Suter was a better pitcher than Lee Smith. I, you know, Lee Smith got a lot of saves. Um, but I just thought Pittsburgh pitched more innings. He pitched more. He, yeah. you know, he, and he, he won the Cy Young, but I, I don't have a problem with it. If you want to go, I mean, Bruce Sura didn't pitch as long as a cub as a cub as Lee Smith did. Lee Smith pitched more as a cub um, than Bruce Suter did. But uh, so I don't have a problem with it. I, I, I do think Bruce Suter was a better pitcher though than Lee Smith. All right. So our first pick that does not come from one of our three lineups That is all of the positions in the lineup. So to recap, our all-time manager, Joe Madden, catcher, Gabby Hartnett, first baseman, playing in position now, Cap Anson, Ryan Sandberg at second base, Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub is your shortstop, Ron Santo playing the hot corner at third base, with an outfield of Billy Williams, Hack Wilson, Sammy Sosa, left, center, and right. Ferguson Jenkins is on the mound to start the game, and he will be relieved by Lee Smith. So that's a pretty good all-time lineup. I don't think we have any regrets from this one. We're not going to have to revisit this two weeks in a row and see if uh-oh, Ronan, Ronan says maybe. Well, you got to make the case for Flash Gordon in the bullpen. I love the 2001 Cubs. Um, Jeff Facero. Can't make the case for Rick Aguilera, I'm afraid. <laughs> Great career in Minnesota, all that, but oof, didn't go so well in Chicago. Um, Pedro Stroke. Should be in the conversation. He's not number one, but I think that's a name that should be in the conversation. Randy Myers is a name that I think should be in the conversation for all-time great Cubs relief pitchers. Uh, there have been a lot of Cubs bad teams in our lifetime, but sure there have been memorable players and great players who've had individual iconic seasons in that time. And I think uh, Randy Myers fits into that mold. And of course, Kyle Farnsworth. Yeah, of course. How could you forget Kyle Farnsworth? Imagine a bullpen of Kyle Farnsworth and Pedro Strope. There'd be a lot of character in that bullpen. You should put Turk Wendell in there. Even more character. Randall, we haven't announced a broadcaster, though. You know, for my money, it's Pat Hughes, and you guys can debate whether Pat should be in there. That I mean, that's that's still my number one pick. The, the voice of my Cubs fandom, Pat Hughes, is the play-by-play voice. That's good. Like, you can't go wrong with Pat Hughes. I want to give Jeremy a little bit of credit here, though. Um, Jack Brickhouse, longtime voice of the Cubs, just longtime voice of Chicago. He broadcast everything in the city of Chicago in his tenure. So I think you could – you go find a few of those in my book. Pat Hughes, Jack Brickhouse. I picked Harry. Harry's part of my childhood. But I think you can make the case that Jack Brickhouse and Pat Hughes, just with longevity and the direction that this is all going, maybe they're a better pick for the play-by-play voice for the Cubs. Uh, so the solution there is to have them split the broadcast. They're both in the booth sure. the entire time, and they they you know do two innings each. Makes sense to me. I'm surprised, Randall, you didn't say Corey Provis. I thought that was going to be your guy there. Well, you know, Ronan, I do like to keep the people guessing. And as big of a Corey Provis fan as I am, he doesn't quite make the cut for all times Cub broadcaster. Maybe I thought, someday. I thought Randall was going to say Tom Brenneman. 
Oh man. Yeah, Here, boy, I'm gonna take my headset off and maybe not put it on again. The great Cubs broadcast or Josh Lewin. In all your years watching Chicago Cubs baseball, Randall, you first. Who has been your least favorite Cubs broadcaster? Ooh, um, that is very easy. That's Zach Saidman. I'm Zach 100% Saidman. with you. Um, yeah. Jeremy, do you got a least favorite? You had some good names there that you threw out as well. Uh, well, you know, just think about Zach Saidman, not the great. I mean, usually when the fifth inning comes on and on the radio, I, I have, I mean, Ron Coomer, I, I love the dude, but as a play by play guy, not good, brutal. brutal. And I, did Judd Surratt ever call some games? Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've had some, you know, and, and then they used to do that on the TV too, back with Harry. So like, it was always like, who's going, you know what I'm going to do? I heard his Nick. I heard, I, I just because of what he did, I heard his call last week on the Robbie gold field goal. And I loved hearing his misery. So I'm going to say Wayne Larravee is my least favorite Cubs <laughs> broadcaster just for going to green Bay. Yeah. And there is, and there is your dagger courtesy of Robbie gold. Also uh, awful to pay. I was bitching about that with Carl Ravitch. Uh, Wayne, come on, man. Uh, never a good look when broadcasters go with the fake hair. Let's talk about the Hall of Fame. We got some word this week. Uh, just one player selected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame by the Baseball Writers Association of America. His first year on the ballot. David Ortiz, the only guy who gets in. Now, I don't want to you know, sort of poo-poo on Ortiz. I think all three of us said that this is a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame. I want to start with this, though. On their 10th and final year on the ballot, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, Kurt Schilling, not in the Hall of Fame. Is there anything more useless, other than maybe Rob Manfred and these owners, right now in the baseball ecosystem than the Baseball Writers Association of America? No, it's 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 a joke. It's a joke that – it's a, well, first of all, the Baseball Writers Association of America, I, I would – say they did vote to release public ballots and the hall of fame turned it down because it's up to the hall of fame so that's kind of a joke to begin with but like you have writers that are just like sending in ballots with nobody you have you've dan shaughnessy boston sitting in a ballot that's just jeff kent like what what, what are you doing that's just like making an ass nobody thinks ju- only jeff kent is a hall of fame baseball player <laughs> on the ballot i mean come on it's just a ridiculous I don't think thing he believes it's- that it's yeah. pure narcissism. If right. I do this, people are going to talk about me. Fuck that guy. Yeah, yeah, That's horseshit. It's horseshit. It's just a joke. It's like, and I don't know how you necessarily fix it. I will say that, like, you know, they've, they, oh, I have, I've tightened up, like, you know, wh- who gets to be in the BBWA. And a, a lot of the new guys that have been coming in, like, it's been like 90% of them have voted for Bonds, have voted for Clemens over the last few years. So had they been on the ballot longer, they probably would have ticked up. And I, you would point out that it is like 66% Bonds got votes last year on Clemens. So it's not, it's, it is the majority of the, the writers think he should get in. But, you know, it's a joke and we'll see what happens. They're going to be eligible for the today's committee in December. So, who knows what the that'll do? Cause that's all just like, you know, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony LaRusso making backroom deals to get Harold Baines in the hall of fame. So maybe they have some clout with some guys who knows, but uh, it's a joke that they weren't able to get in, in their 10 years. You can't give these writers the platform to grandstand that the hall of fame ballot affords them and make it the, the sole gateway, not the sole gateway, but the primary gateway into what is supposed to be your most hollowed how hallowed hall i beg your pardon (laughs) your most hallowed hall 
of the history of the sport. You can't have it both ways. You can't give writers the opportunity to grandstand run, as you said, make it entirely about themselves and allow them to gatekeep the hall of fame like that. You either need to, you, you need to fix one or the other, or you need to separate the process. It's a lot like, it's not nearly as important, but it's a lot like fan all-star voting. And I, one of the reasons I'm glad that that no longer determines home field advantage in the world series, because you can't have people voting for someone who does not belong in the name of getting a couple giggles in when that could potentially affect who wins a title and, you know, small effect. So you need, you need to find some way to separate the voting from admission, or you need to fix one or the other, because this system is not tenable. You are keeping very legitimate players out of what's supposed to be the, the place where players are enshrined for your sport. You have to fix one or the other. You got to get the baseball writers out of it. As far as I'm concerned, it's an antiquated thing from an era when newspapers had more relevance here in the United States. And that time has come and that time has gone. And it's crazy to me that these writers can hold personal grudges against baseball players and then have the ability to keep them out of the Hall of Fame. And there's a lot of benefits to Major League players getting in the Hall of Fame, including the fact for those players, it's very lucrative to be a member of the Hall of Fame. And they're screwing those players unfairly. I don't like it at all. I, I, I don't like it at all. And to me, this is a museum of baseball history. You do not have the all-time home run leader in the Museum of Baseball History. Roger Clemens won more than 350 Major League Baseball games. I'm going to say this right now. There is never going to be a Major League Baseball pitcher again that's going to win 350 Major League Baseball games. Roger Clemens won 354. Kurt Schilling, he's an asshole. His politics, I don't care about that. He was an awesome baseball player. Sammy Sosa hit more than 600 home runs. He's the only player in Major League history to have 360 home run seasons. This is insane that those players are not in the Hall of Fame and that a writer in Boston can has the power to keep those people out of the Hall of Fame. Now, there's a chance they can still get in. There are other committees that can put them in the Hall, but the baseball writers have lost the privilege to do this, in my opinion, and I'd like to see them removed from the process. And let me say this to that point. Baseball is steeped in tradition. I know this is a tradition, but look, we're talking about pitchers don't bat anymore. We've had to watch guys on second base to start extra inning games. There's a lot of tradition. We're talking about pitch clocks at Major League Baseball games. If we're going to do away with these traditions that have been historic in baseball, then screw these writers. They don't get to determine who gets in the Hall of Fame. That's how I feel. I would like to see the Baseball Hall follow more of a the Professional Football Hall of Fame where they have basically a committee. I think it's like a 50-person committee. And they like get in a room and they argue these things out and then they vote and there are rules on the voting. And for football, it's obviously more guys, they have bigger backlog. So they have like a minimum of four guys have to get in with a maximum of seven guys. And I, I think, and there are writers in that room. There are former players, there are former, co it's just a whole mix of people on a committee and they're having, and it's what the today's committee, the veterans committee kind of are, but on, at a smaller thing, I think that's a better way of doing it than, you know, First of all, I don't think sending a blank ballot should be allowed. That's just making an ass of yourself. Like, if you don't think yes. somebody is deserving to get into the Hall of Fame, don't vote. Because all you're doing is just harming the process by sending it. It's a zero is a huge deal. It knocks everybody down a huge percentage. And they have to make up votes to overtake that. So it's, it's, it's massive. It's massive sabotage to the process. And it's the sort of thing that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, well, let's give credit though where credit is due. 
We all think David Ortiz should be a Hall of Famer. I'm happy for him. He's going to be the youngest member of the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. I'm, I'm saying living member at 46 years old. So good for him. He had a great career. But all these writers said, hey, if you're tied or even connected in the slightest bit to steroids, you can't get in. David Ortiz gets in on his first ballot. That entire excuse is bullshit. And all of these guys, including Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, they all deserve to be in that hall. Ortiz is as tied to steroids as Sammy in is yes. the, 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 the sole tie for both of them is being named in the Mitchell report, which I think has been, it's come under scrutiny. In the uh, neither were named released. in the Mitchell report. They, the sole tie is uh, the 2003 uh, testing uh, program that they, they put named, in that they uh, New York times. So what happened was in 2003, they at major league baseball uh, uh, put in a, uh, basically a, a test to see who was taking drugs, you know, any type of drugs. And if they, if it hit a certain number then they would institute uh mandated drug testing and the results of that were supposed to be destroyed. It was supposed to be, and they never even said what they were testing for. They could be testing for like anything. And the New York times got like a copy of the list allegedly and published and said Sosa and Ortiz and all these other guys were on that list of guys that day. But other than that, and Rob Manfred himself said, you can't, you can't count that list because first it doesn't say what they tested positive for. Could have been anything. Could have been things that weren't illegal. Second of all, it was just, it was supposed to be destroyed and it was just for a pilot thing, uh, uh, just a test. So it is, it, it was nonsense that that's what people are holding over them. My mistake, not named in the Mitchell report, named in this, this leak, this leaked list of, of drug testing got into the hands of the New York time. But again, point remains, they have the same, same one tenuous connection to PEDs and apparently it's disqualifying for Sammy, but not for David Ortiz. Ronan, like you said, none of us are disqualifying David Ortiz, great player, great career, but there's, there's no uniformity in what's keeping a guy out versus what's allowing them to get in none whatsoever. You know, Jeremy made the point a couple of weeks when we were talking about our hall of fame picks that he puts that added weight on postseason performance. David Ortiz had a lot of big moments in October with Boston. I'm 100% behind him being in the hall of fame. It's just appalling that he's in there and Barry Bonds isn't there. Barry Bonds may be the greatest baseball player of all time. I'm not joking with that either. He was a dominant force. He could slug. He had a high batting average. He was just an all around great player, could steal bases. If you were to make a baseball player in a machine, other than Randall, you'd make Barry Bonds. Like that's the guy that you create if you're building a hitter. For him not to be in the hall, it's just, it's absurd. What what did you set your machine to that it would have made me? Because that's clearly some kind of factory defect. I don't know that I would trust any machine that that makes me as a baseball player personally. Yeah, I'd love to see a hit. Yeah, I agree with both you guys. Uh, You know, David for for me, David Ortiz was on the list, but he was down the list. Like I'm happy for David Ortiz. Yeah, I'm happy somebody got in the hall. I think it would have been nonsense if you know zero people get in the hall so i'm glad that somebody is a hall of famer i'm glad there's somebody to celebrate uh david ortiz you know i'm he was a dh he kind of you know i have my own issues with him but he, he has the same the same as Randall mentioned the same pd stains that a lot of other guys got tagged with you know it took jeff bagwell forever to get in the hall it took mike piazza and yvonne rodriguez it took him years to finally overcome it and they had like nothing it was just oh they played with these guys that have said things so like David Ortiz got tagged with, and so for them people to just ignore that 
while they're not ignoring it for Barry Bonds, they're not ignoring it for uh, Alex Rodriguez tested positive, or he didn't test positive, but he got suspended later in his career. He only got 34% of the vote, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, on his first year on the ballot, A-Rod, you know, uh, a great player. So it's, uh, it's just, to me, it's a joke that they're able to waive certain things for David Ortiz to get in, but they're not for Barry Bonds. Well, you mentioned Barry Bonds had like 200 walks in like 1990. Like he was an amazing baseball player. Well, and I'll say this too. There are many great writers in the Baseball Writers Association of America. There are hardworking journalists in there with integrity. They're honest about their ballots. But as a collective, the organization has completely embarrassed itself. And this is another example of it. And what do we get to look forward to next year? Some new names on the ballot. Randall's guy, Bronson Arroyo, Jason Wirth, R.A. Dickey. This John is what Lackey. we're looking at next year. But John hey, Lackey. Camp. Yeah, John Lackey on the ballot next year. Uh, it's just, it seems like a huge miss, but these guys will get an opportunity. Other committees will take a look at them. And I do think we're going to see a hall of fame with all of those players. Roger Clemens came out with a statement this week saying 10 years ago, he and his family said, screw it. I don't even care. And all the more power to him. I don't love Roger Clemens, right? Like he always seemed like an ass to me, but man, what a great dominant baseball pitcher. One of the most feared pitchers, certainly in our lifetime. And at no point in his career, and I grew up watching a lot of it. Did I ever doubt that that guy was a Hall of Famer? He's clearly a Hall of Fame pitcher. And Kurt Schilling too, right? And I know he's pissed a lot of people off and whatever. He was a Hall of Fame pitcher. We all saw it. It's wrong that he was prohibited from getting in at this point. I, I agree with you on both those guys. I, I, I mean, as we said, Kurt Schilling is the guy that people wanted Jack Morris to be. They pretended he was like this amazing postseason pitcher. Kurt Schilling is maybe the greatest postseason, well, at least one of the greatest postseason pitchers of all time. Amazing pitcher. I mean, yeah. he's an asshole. I wouldn't want to hear his his uh, induction speech or whatever <laughs> he says. But, you know, if he would just focus on being, you know, a bit, he was a fantastic pitcher, and I think he deserves to be in there. Um, and same with Clemens. So it just, I, I hope, because I know it would mean a lot, I, I would assume if Roger Clemens does end up getting in with the Veterans Committee and stuff. And I hope that these committees are serious and do the right thing and, and put some of these guys into the hall of fame. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and here's the thing. I've never been to the baseball hall of fame. It's on my bucket list. I absolutely want to get there and see it. There's two things in sort of that region in New York and New York's a big state. So when I say that region, it's probably two hours or so between <laughs> these places, I want to get to big pink and I want to get to the Cooperstown. Those are two things that I absolutely have to get to. That's on my bucket list. And I hope we I got a little road trip, BTYL road trip. You guys give me my moment with Big Pink, band's old uh, hangout there with Bob Dylan and everything near Woodstock. And then we'll go over to Cooperstown and we'll uh, lament the fact that Sammy Sosa's plaque isn't hanging up on the wall there. We will pick it outside the Hall of Fame. Well, we're getting near the end of the show here. Two things left that I want to talk about. This is our 54th podcast. So we want to highlight some Cubs names. And when you think of 54, the Bears come to mind for me, and there's some big Bears news here this week as well. But let's start with the Cubs numbers in 54. Randall, you're our numbers guy. You're part of – what's that Twitter account that you're working at, with? At Numbers MLB. At Numbers MLB. I always get it wrong. I didn't want to get it wrong here. Who are some 54s in Cubs history that our listeners can remember? Well, as our episode count continues to climb, we're getting fewer and fewer guys each week because, uh, you know, not a whole lot of guys in any organization with notable in numbers in the 50s and the 60s. But some of the names that jump out to me, 
for number 54. Of course, Aroldis Chapman had uh, an eventful tenure as a member of the Cubs. Uh, Justin Hancock, who I, I barely remember at all, but he was a Cub in 2018. Uh, Coach Chris Young is wearing it right now. And one name that does jump out to me a little bit is Darnell McDonald, who had a, a marginal major league career, but he has in his post-playing career made a name for himself as a very well-respected mental skills coach. And I believe that's a position he still holds in the Cubs organization. He was a number 54 in his brief time as a Cub. We go back to David Ardsma, who uh, alphabetically, is I believe the first player in major league history. He is first on the alphabetical list of major league players, Neil Ramirez, who I thought was going to be yeah. a guy with a capital yes. G. Um, he did not turn out that way. He was a number 54. Bob Dernier was a 54 in his time as a coach in 2010. Sean camp who briefly served as the closer for um, some very bad Cubs teams. He was a 54. It's not a number that has distinguished itself a whole lot in decades of history. Ronan, I know one of your guys on here is a number 54. Uh, Ron Mayhay, David Ardsma, Mark Clark, Jeremy Gonzalez. Where are we going with this? I was thinking Ron Mayhay, but you know, when okay. I say your guy, there's like five or six different guys. You, you'd be in For the sure. same state as somebody. Hey, there goes your guy. Well, you know, the other one too is David Patton. Think about the 2009 Chicago Cubs. This was a team that was vying for a playoff spot. They made the playoffs in 07, made the playoffs in 08. They had David Patton on that roster for months. Absolutely crazy that that guy had that much time on a major league roster. Rule well, five I'm, pick. If I'm not, if it's not mistaken, yeah. he was a rule five pick. So, of course, he had to stay but, on the roster lest he be returned. Your roster spots are so valuable. And the Cubs wasted it during a year that they were trying to make the playoffs and they were in the hunt till about September or so. They, they were in first place as late as August. And they, yeah. that roster, one of those 25 spots was given over to a rule five pick who never amounted to anything. I want I mean, to say all, too. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say they also traded Mark DeRosa. So they weren't, you know, valuing their roster spots that well. No, no. Um, Here's a guy pull one out for. Jeremy Gonzalez, remember the 1997 Chicago Cubs wearing number 54. We love Jeremy Gonzalez. Unfortunate, a very sad story with his life. But I will say, if you were paying close attention to our Twitter account last week and you saw the graphic that we put up with all of our teams, you noticed that we spelled Jeremy's name, J-E-R-E-M-I. And that's something that I've been doing. I put an I on the end of everybody's name. It pisses off Randall more than anything, and I love it. But it's also kind of a hat tip to Jeremy Gonzalez. So I'm always thinking about him when I put Jay, Jeremy with the I at the end when I'm writing to you, Jeremy. If you've ever hung out with Ronan, there will be times randomly he'll just take his hat off, he'll point to the sky, he'll go, Jeremy with an I, and then he'll just go about the rest of his day. And, I, and other Cubs greats that we've yeah. lost. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and Jeremy Gonzalez, you know, he's the guy who went down for Kerry Wood to pretty much come up, I believe. Um so I, I, he, I love Jeremy Gonzalez, you know, I shared a name with him 10 years old being like, Oh, look, this cool guy in the Cubs, Jeremy Gonzalez. And then uh, we mentioned Mark Clark, another guy that I remember, you know, on the 98 Cubs, uh, Goose Gossage in his time with the Cubs, a hall of famer wearing number 54, as well as another hall of famer in Stan Hack as a coach in 1965, a guy who also probably deserved more love on the behind the yellow line, uh, all time Cubs draft, a great third baseman for the Cubs, Stan Hack. So yeah. we probably should have given him more love. Well, you say 54 in this city. I say this city from Denver. Of course, we talk about Chicago. Uh, Brian Erlacher and his new hair is something that comes to mind for me. Another guy, an incredible player, Hall of Famer, 
maybe you don't love him as much when he opens his mouth, but I, I don't mind. I, whatever. I like people having their opinions, even if I disagree with them. It's just personality is a good thing in my book. Anyway, sort of a polarizing figure. But let's talk about the Bears on that front. They have a new general manager. They've got a new head coach. And in our private chat here, before we came on the air, Randall, you said you're high on the new GM. You're not sold on the coach. What are you getting at with that? Well, new GM, he seems fine. You know, football, I am not nearly as entangled with as I am baseball. You make a hire in baseball. If I don't know who the guy is, I know where to go to find out who the guy is. Football, I'm not nearly that knowledgeable about. So I'm kind of reliant upon people who do know better. People who do know better say Ryan Poles is a solid hire. He comes from a successful organization in Kansas City. No need to say what they've accomplished in the last few years. People who have worked with him say he's an excellent evaluator of talent, especially on the offensive line and the defensive line. And what, right, what do you need more than that in your GM is who can identify the guy who's going to be with you in the trenches. So I'm okay with the GM hire. I think he comes well-regarded, and I think it's a, a solid hire. It wasn't necessarily my pick, but again, my pick is not necessarily the best pick because I, half the time, don't know who a guy is. Head coach, I'm not super sold on. They hired a Eberf, Eberfluss. Is that, is that how we pronounce the name? Eberfluss. Eberfluss. I beg your pardon. Eberfluss. I'm going to pronounce it Everflush at least once, but Eberfluss, the defensive former defensive coordinator from the Indianapolis Colts, and I'm not super sold on the hire. He just seems like a safe pick. He doesn't seem like a home run pick. I would have been down with the offensive coordinator from Buffalo because I want an offensive mind in here to try and make Justin Fields the great quarterback that we know he is. Now, with that being said, if Eberfluss goes out there and makes a home run hire for offensive coordinator who put together a staff who can play to Justin Fields strength, I feel better about the hire. So offensive staff is going to make or break this head coach hire for me. If he Eber flubs that, I'm not sold on it. Jeremy, you are our season ticket holder on the group. So where are you sitting with the new GM and head coach? So, uh, you know, I think, well, first of all, you know, I, I think they just didn't want to change the nameplates in the, uh, <laughs> or in house hall, you got, you went from Ryan and Matt to Ryan and Matt. So just very simple. Yep. The monogram um, towels don't have to be replaced. Exactly. You know, George doesn't have to learn new names. He can just continue to say Ryan and Matt. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, Ryan pulls as the GM hire, like, like Randall, like it's tough to know too much, um, which is my thing is like, we don't really know a whole lot. Uh, in terms of all these guys, their backgrounds, we know like, you know, their CVs pretty much. But, hey, he's a guy who signed with the Bears as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, I'm willing cool. to give uh, these uh, out of college. I'm willing to give these guys, you know, a chance. Uh, I If it seemed like the Bears targeted him a little bit, they went out. George McCaskey went, hired him. He wasn't my top guy. But, you know, all the these other guys, they all pretty much have the same background it's like started scouting you become the director of of uh you become like an advanced pro scout director of pro scouting director of player personnel you're an assistant gm like everybody had the same background for the most part of everybody who was up for this job except for uh, the one guy who played basketball at princeton um so you have 95 percent of them so like if that's the guy the cub or excuse me the bears thought was the best for the job i'm okay with it i like the fact that he worked under three different general managers with three very different styles in kansas city it's not like ryan pace working for one guy the whole time uh it's a it's a similar hire i feel like it's a little kind of a similar hire of pace and maggie where like we're bringing in a young guy we want him to learn uh, and then they had John Fox for pace at first, but then Nagy, it's like another young, uh, Eberfluss isn't young, but another guy who's never been a head coach before. 
uh, as for Eberflus, like he had connections to polls throughout his career. So I imagine that he was a guy that polls had on his list when he was being interviewed by the bears, like this idea that the, they would never talk about this in the interviews, like the bears when they were interviewing coaches, I imagine they're asking their perspective gems, like who are guys we should be looking at? Who are guys you would be interested in? And then they're interviewing. And then it said that polls ran those interviews himself, the, the later three and made the decision. And he has connections all over the place to polls. Uh, he worked for Chris Ballard, the GM in Indianapolis. Well, he came from Kansas city. And before that he came from the bears. So he has connection to uh, polls. So I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I give a lot of leeway. So I'm waiting to see uh, all these guys. We don't know too much. Like I don't know a whole lot about Matt Eberfluss. So I can't really say great hire, not a great hire. I I'm just, you know, let, let it play out and we'll see if he's incompetent or not. I think it's hard to tell with these head coaches until they're in those game situations and you exactly. see, okay, you're in the pressure, you're in the stadium, the teams are on the field. What's your clock management? How are you reacting to what the other team is giving you? And when the team makes adjustments at halftime, are you stunted by that or are you responding to it? So you got to go into this. Look, look, it's better than Nagy and Pace. It, it can't be worse. That was horrible. What we've been watching the last couple of years. Jeremy shakes his head here. I know he's like, oh, they made the playoffs a couple of times. Hey, John Fox and Pace was worse than Nagy and Pace. Look, zero <laughs> playoff wins under Ryan Pace. It cannot get worse than that. It cannot get worse. You have to win playoff games in the city. So I'm I'm excited. The the Bears organizational issues run far deeper than GM and head coach. They still have major problems in their front office and ownership. But what else can I do here but be optimistic about this new group coming in? The Bears have a very talented young quarterback. That's what you need to be successful in the NFL right now with all the offense. Maybe these guys can figure it out. It's better than what we had. Yeah, that's my thought. Like, George McCaskey is turning over the keys to Ryan Poles. Like, and Ted Phillips is no longer involved at all, supposedly. You know, Poles is reporting to, to George McCaskey. So I don't know if Ryan Poles is the right guy. But he's going to be get every chance to show whether he's the right guy or not, because that's it. And, you know, who knows? Like, it all comes down to the players, really. Like, Brian Dable is the hot name in Buffalo, but that's because he has Josh Allen, right? Like, before that, it, he worked, he was offense coordinator, three different spots, no, and he got fired multiple times. Like, who knows? This Every guy has different CVs, and some of those guys end up being very successful. But, like, we don't know who's going to be the top guy. So, I'm, I, I, I to me, I didn't really, I don't, out of all the guys, that the, there was no clear cut guy to hire for me. So I'm perfectly fine with this hire. And one thing that uh, Eberfluss has going for him, he's not Dan Quinn, who we have plenty of sample size in his time as head coach. And he's not Leslie Frazier. And I, I, <laughs> he's I did not, not Jim think Caldwell. he's also not Jim Caldwell. I did not think Leslie Frazier was going to be the pick solely because he was an 85 bear, but this organization doesn't have a whole lot of benefit of the doubt right now. And you can never be sure they're not going to do the worst thing until they definitively have not done the worst thing. So that's something Eberfluss has going for him. He's not the worst pick. So already we are, we're making progress. I, I would like to say well, one thing is there's going to be a name out there. That's already been getting some play that I'm sure are, are relevant Northwestern fans. Mark love. Mike Kafka, the former Northwestern quarterback, who's apparently a rising star with the Kansas city chiefs uh, to come in and be the offensive coordinator. Uh, he's the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Kansas City. And, you know, we've tried the Kansas City Chiefs a little bit with Matt Nagy, the offense. So I don't know if that's necessarily the route I want to go, but I think it'll be interesting to see if they try that again. Uh, the name I would like is Mike McDaniel from uh, San Francisco, the offense coordinator. He doesn't call plays in San Francisco, so maybe he would want a chance to call plays and develop his own quarterback. 
Not Mark Trestman. Not Mark. Hey, <laughs> I, I mean, you said it couldn't be worse. And Mark Trestman, Phil Emery, man. It's not, I, I'd still rather have a guy who at least won a division. I just want some playoff wins. I want some good football in the city. You're the interseason ticket holder. So but I'd, I'd rather get football. to the playoffs than go 4-12 or whatever. Sure. <laughs> certainly. Certainly. I'm going to end with this question and keep it tight because we're out of time yeah. here. Let's bring this thing home. What is your single favorite moment in Chicago Bears history in our life? Uh, for me, it would be the the NFC Championship game 2006 being at the game. I think cool. just the raising of the George Halas Trophy. And Soldier Field was amazing. That's special. Uh, Devin Hester returning the opening kickoff of the Super Bowl. That was the that was the apex. It was it's been all downhill from there with a couple of a couple of peaks, a couple of rises. It's been all downhill from there. I prefer to think that Super Bowl ended right after that play. I don't remember anything else. Well, I'm still stuck in 2001, so I'll go with the walk-off overtime wins in 2001 with that memorable team. Right after that Cubs magical season, the Bears put together a magical one of their own, and they fell apart in the playoffs. But, man, that regular season was a blast. If we're going 2001, you have to also put up when Keith Trailer shook the entire yes. world on that yes. intercepted green pass <laughs> and ran about them up. 70 yards for that. And to go back to Randall, I, also being at the Super Bowl, I was right behind Devin Hester when he caught the ball. I was at the end zone. They caught it, and they were running away from me. That was amazing. Unfortunately, I was sick, and I was like under the weather, so I thought about putting that up as my number one. But I, I just think it was just a, the championship game was just so much more of a fun experience overall. Sure. And yeah, and hey, after that, Musa Muhammad caught a touchdown pass from Rex Grossman. The Bears were up 14-7, Randall. So at least get to that point in the game. Okay, I'll get to that point in the game. 14-7. <laughs> then it got blown by yeah, Illini yeah. Kelvin Hayden who's from Chicago. Well, that's all we got this week. Next week, I'm telling you right now, 60 minutes, or the way we go, 90 minutes, of Coy Hill and Augie Ojeda for number 55. We're looking forward to it. Hopefully we'll have some movement here on the CBA. For Jeremy and Randall, this is Ronan. We are on Twitter at BTYL Podcast. We'll see you next week. We're talking Coy Hill all hour. See ya.